you're you're being asked to participate in this uh, set of procedures, and you actually don't know what the procedures are um, and and the reasons for them. It, was, it felt fair, by the way. It felt much better than actual trials. This is briefly. This episode is part of a three-part series looking at Title IX and the due process rights of students. This issue has attracted a lot of controversy recently when Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos rescinded the Obama administration's 2011 guidance for how universities should handle sexual misconduct cases. We've interviewed multiple professors to discuss this issue. This is part one. Here we will look into the background of the 2011 Dear Colleague letter and talk with professors who have been involved with Title IX proceedings on their campuses. First, some background. The source of the controversy is a Dear Colleague letter that the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights issued in 2011. The Dear Colleague letter is a letter from Education Department officials uh, at their Office of Civil Rights to their colleagues at federally funded educational institutions across the country, setting forth the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights' interpretation of Title IX. That's Professor Daniel Hemmel, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, So if you're a federally funded uh, educational institution, um, you really don't want to violate Title IX, uh, but the text of Title IX uh, is pretty short and sweet. Uh, So you can't discriminate against or exclude from participation individuals in uh, federally funded educational institutions on the basis of sex. Um, And that leads to interpretive ambiguities. And the Dear Colleague letter was an attempt to resolve some of those uh, ambiguities. Specifically, the Dear Colleague letter offered guidance on how universities and colleges should handle sexual misconduct claims on their campuses. Certain parts of the guidance have proven controversial. For example, the Dear Colleague letter required universities to adopt the preponderance of the evidence standard of proof rather than the higher, clear and convincing evidence standard. As for the force of law or as for what legal effect it has, uh, not much. Um, If uh, you're in the office of uh, general counsel at a university, you'll read it. Um, But uh, the... A violation of the Dear Colleague letter is not itself grounds for revocation of federal funding. And the Department of Education would have to go through a number of steps before revoking federal funding on the basis of a violation of the guidelines set forth in the Dear Colleague letter. Uh, So if, uh, let's say, there were a university that used a clear and convincing evidence standard rather than a preponderance of the evidence standard in its uh, campus sexual assault adjudications, OCR would, uh, upon receipt of a complaint from uh, a student, um, initially try to resolve the matter with the university informally, uh, and then uh, would go through an adjudicative process within the Department of Education that would ultimately be subject to judicial review uh, before they would pull federal funding. Um, And during that adjudicative process, the fact of violation of the Dear Colleague letter would not be sufficient grounds upon which to find for OCR, to find for the Department of Education. So there are some instances in which there are regulations where simply violating the regulation is enough to show liability. A good example is um, in the tax context. Uh, The uh, IRS issues uh, uh, 
documents with regular with the force and effect of law on a regular basis that have interest rates that you have to use for uh, gift loans among family members. Um, and if you violate the rate, uh, the IRS does not have to prove in a proceeding that the rate was right. Uh, whereas in a review proceeding here, um, the Department of Education would have to show that you violated some other legal source with the force and effect of law. So uh, you did not have an equitable uh, grievance resolution procedure. Um, it would uh, simply saying you had a clear and convincing rather than preponderance of the evidence standard would not be enough. We also spoke with University of Chicago law professor Saul Levmore. Professor Levmore previously served as a faculty chair on the university-wide Student Disciplinary Committee, which is the committee that oversees the University of Chicago's formal resolution process for handling Title IX complaints. Professor Levmore's comments are not a statement of official university policy. It is important to note that the University of Chicago's policy, like any universities, is not necessarily representative of Title IX policies elsewhere. The first step at the University of Chicago is for a student to bring his or her allegation to the Associate Dean of Students in the university. A preliminary investigation follows, which may include an in-person meeting during which the Associate Dean informs the student that they have been accused of sexual misconduct. After the investigation, the Associate Dean and a faculty chair of the university-wide Student Disciplinary Committee determine whether there is enough evidence to proceed to the formal resolution process. Then he starts asking, he yeah, talks, to, talks to somebody like me and says, well, this is what she says, this is what he says, what do you think? And I said, well, what, what was the impression you got of them and you know, any other facts? Did you talk to anybody else? He goes, well, I was waiting for you. I did call... Uh, the hospital to ask about this, and I found out that. That's Professor Levmore. And part of it is you don't have that much information until you actually go to the hearing. You have some information. If formal resolution is warranted, the accuser will be asked to write a complaint, and the accused can offer a written response. The material gets more and more formal, and now the guy builds up a dossier, and then that's one that the, and then the committee is picked out of the people who have been trained and are in the right categories. So now there, I'm going to go to this actual hearing. It's the first time I'm going to meet the people. And there's going to be two other faculty members and a staff member and a student. And then there's a whole procedure for how they sit in a room and there's a little curtain between them. Have you run into this on TV or anything? So they don't have to look at each other. During the hearing, the University of Chicago permits both students to bring exactly one support person with them. The support person is allowed to sit in and observe but he or she is prohibited from being an active participant in the proceeding. When we're there talking to them, we want to hear from the student and we want the student to respond. We do the same thing, by the way, in cheating cases. It's just copying what universities have been doing for 100 years. Uh, you know, we want to hear their version of how they took this exam or what they did or didn't borrow. And we don't want to hear some lawyer, you know, give a twist. Of course, they could have talked to the lawyer and twisted their reactions. So we follow that. Again, it's not entirely realistic because they bend over and talk to their friend. Both sides do. Um, they can write little notes to each other. You know, and the rule seems a little Mickey Mouse to me. But that's the rule, and that's very similar to the rule that we followed in other hearings. Both parties have the opportunity to submit evidence during the hearing. With respect to cross-examination, the University of Chicago, for example, does not permit either student to directly question each other. 
Instead, they are permitted to submit questions to the faculty chair, who then determines whether the questions are appropriate to ask. You know, the, the questions had been asked a hundred times, or they were irrelevant, or it, it wasn't. Great. Once in a while, they were good. Like, you know, well, ask them about the time when, da, da, da. I think, oh, you know, I understand that one, you know, but usually those things would have come up already. So I don't think they're, it really would have been awful if they had asked each other questions. I don't know what you think about cross-examination in general, but. The University of Chicago, there are five people who serve on the committee hearing a case. They consist of three faculty members, one staff member, and one student. At the conclusion of the hearing, the committee will determine whether the accused is responsible based on the preponderance of the evidence standard of proof. The university permits either student to appeal. Some professors have criticized universities for the way they handle sexual misconduct allegations. One such professor is Laura Kipnis, a communications professor at Northwestern University. In 2015, Northwestern investigated Professor Kipnis after graduate students filed Title IX complaints alleging that Kipnis had violated Northwestern's sexual misconduct policy. Uh, I had written an article called Sexual Paranoia Strikes Academe for the Chronicle, and I had talked about the case of a professor on our campus, Peter Ludlow, a philosophy professor who had gotten caught up in um, sexual misconduct allegations. And I had written a couple of paragraphs and uh, the students objected, I guess, to me, you know, speaking about the case and objected to the point of view that I took on it. And, you know, one of the questions was why Northwestern would allow a uh, case that had to do with a publication to go forward. So that became part of the discussion about it, uh, you know, whether that was a legitimate use of, of Title IX. And, you know, I was uh, found not culpable uh, or not responsible. I can't remember the exact wording ultimately. But, you know, after the school spent probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on um, bringing in these outside investigators and who produced two 70-page reports and, and that sort of thing. So yes, that has shaped my view of, of Title IX in the process. The procedures were very mysterious to me, like starting with the fact that the investigators wouldn't tell me the actual complaints against me in writing. Uh, so they ended up flying to campus to meet with me and have an investigate, have a meeting, uh, an investigative meeting. But before that, we had a Skype session where they did tell me sort of the substance of the complaints, but they wouldn't put them in writing. Uh, so, you know, all of that stuff was kind of mysterious. Why wouldn't they put the complaints in writing? Um, they wouldn't let me record the session. Why not? They themselves didn't record the session when we met. Somebody took notes, um, but then they allowed me to read a copy of the notes and make amendments if I, if I wanted to. So, you know, you're, and you're, you're being asked to participate in this uh, set of procedures, and you actually don't know what the procedures are um, and, and the reasons for them. In November of 2015, Northwestern philosophy professor Peter Ludlow resigned from Northwestern after being accused of sexual misconduct by two students, one undergraduate and one graduate student. Northwestern investigated the allegations against Ludlow before he resigned. Professor Kipnis ended up serving as Ludlow's support person, and she recently wrote about her experience in a book entitled Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus. 
after I wrote about uh, having been brought up in these Title IX complaints, because I wrote a second essay for the Chronicle called My Title IX Inquisition. And so after that was published, um, Peter got in touch with me at some point. So he was gonna he was going to be up on dismissal charges. So that was no longer a Title IX complaint. These were uh, this was a dismissal case. And he asked me if I would be willing to be his faculty support person. He had lawyers. At, at that point, there were lawyers who were, uh, you know, conducting the case or defending him in this case, which was held on campus. And it's sort of like a mini trial, but, you know, as I said, held in, in on campus with the university's uh, legal teams, both in-house lawyers and uh, outside counsel um, representing them, and Ludlow had lawyers representing him, and I was the faculty support person. What happened was that this was after um, he resigned. He he was not actually found guilty. He resigned before the process, you know, went to completion. And at some point, I decided to write a book about his case, having been a witness to this dismissal. And at that point, much later, I got from him the files in the case, which included two Title IX reports um, that had been written about these two different uh, accusations. And I also got all of these other materials, including because there had also been a legal uh, case by the first complainant against him, and so she had ended up being deposed. So what was, I think, most interesting to me was comparing um, the deposition that she uh, went through to the Title IX report and the different kinds of facts that were produced in each of those procedures. So in, I mean, this, I guess, would be of more interest to lawyers that, you know, in an adversarial kind of procedure, it seems to me, you actually have more facts being produced than in the Title IX process, which is, you know, a single investigator model, or at least that's how the faculty process is conducted. And so the sorts of questions that were asked of this complainant by the Title IX officer did not produce, I think, um, a really full account of what had actually happened. The two of them had, uh, she'd invited him out to a, a gallery opening and they'd gone to a few bars and gone to some other art events and they had ended up sleeping um, together in his apartment. They didn't have sex, but she claims that he groped her. At one point, he said he didn't. You know, so it was a kind of classic he said, she said. But some of the kinds of questions that his lawyer asked of her in the deposition, you know, got to um, elicited much more information, for example, about how much she had actually drunk that night. So the Title IX officer assumed and made rulings on the basis of an assumption that the young woman had been like incapacitated by alcohol, whereas when she was asked in the deposition how much she had drunk, um, you know, it turned out she had actually not drunk that much at all. Other professors have had a very different reaction to the way universities handle sexual misconduct allegations. For example, Professor Nancy Cantalupo, assistant professor of law at Barry University, does not agree that university proceedings are biased against the accused. If anything, she claims that they can be biased against the accuser. Well, I would actually argue that in many of the cases that I was personally involved in, that there are many victim-blaming stereotypes that cause 
the balance of truth-telling to be more in favor of the accused student and not and and to the detriment of the accusing student or the complaining student you know the reality is is that our colleges and universities are part of our larger society and our larger society has lots and lots of victim blaming stereotypes and so colleges and universities definitely enact those in their proceedings in these cases. And so my experience was that these proceedings were often stacked against the accuser or stacked against the victim as opposed to being stacked against the accused student. Unlike Professor Kipnis, Professor Cantalupo thinks that the single investigator model is a better way of handling sexual misconduct allegations than the adversarial model. I believe that it will it will be more accurate because it will be done by trained people who know how to ask the right questions and gather information and make decisions based on that who can develop their skills as cases go on and who will know the policies really well, that approach is less likely to escalate an already bad dispute between two students into something that nobody is ever going to be happy with the resolution of it. The adversarial process encourages people to retreat to their corners and to just defend their position or present their position and never listen to the other side. And this process is much more likely to lead to a solution that everyone can live with. This episode of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review, was produced by Catherine Running, Tom Malloy, and John Tinkin. Music from bensound.com. Special thanks to the entire online team, including Grace Bridwell, Tom Garvey, Noelle Ottman, and our editor-in-chief, Pat Ward, and executive editor, Kyle Jorstad. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out parts two and three.